morning, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Larry Stutzring, retired Major General, U.S. Air Force, Director of Research here at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, and welcome to the release of our new policy paper titled Understanding the Long-Range Strike Debate. As you are all aware, the topic of long-range strike created some drama in the past few months, stirring up parochial hackles about where one stands on the issue. We've seen some sharply pointed assessments, pay per play editorials, and even finger pointing about who is the most unjoint. Well, this morning we lay all that froth aside. To objectively inform choices, the Department of Defense must make in an era where 20 years of never ending wars allowed China and Russia to deeply cut into the US military's advantage over them. There is a perfect storm that challenges the current administration. In a tightening budget environment, facing surging threats to US interests, under a clear mandate to modernize for modern peer conflict, how do we understand this long range strike debate such that the most effective choices are made not just within each service, but across the entire defense complex? What does the analysis and the data tell us? Now, ladies and gentlemen, we wanted to ensure the most credible work. As you know, we support aerospace power here at Mitchell Institute. So we wanted to team up with Hudson Institute to conduct an objective assessment of the various approaches to long range strike. To eliminate the fog and friction often created by competing service narratives, the study focused on three areas, capabilities, cost, and operational effectiveness. The context for this analysis is the two great power conflict scenarios involving China in the Indo-Pacific and Russia on the European continent. I think you will find the analysis very valuable and if not, in some cases, surprising. To explain the analysis and conclusions, we have with us the three authors from Hudson Institute, senior fellow Brian Clark, who is the director also the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology. From Mitchell Institute, Mark Gonzo Gunzinger, Director of Future Concepts and Capability Assessments. And also from the Mitchell Institute, Senior Analyst, Lucas Ottenried. Well, welcome gentlemen, and thank you for joining us. And with due regard for joining us, we are anxious to dive in, fly in and march in to this long range strike discussion. So let's begin with a summary of the project. Over to you, Gonzo. Uh, thank you, Stutz. And thanks also to my co-authors. Uh, Brian, Lucas, and I have really enjoyed working with you again, especially on this issue. So let's get started. Next slide. Uh, I'll start by emphasizing what Stutz said. Our report is coming out today is not about the parochial interests of any particular service. Instead, we recommend the DAD should take a balanced approach to filling its long-range strike shortfall, which, quite frankly, was created by its failure to acquire next-generation strike weapons and platforms over the last few decades. Now, all the services are pursuing new capabilities to meet that shortfall, which has sparked, as Stutz said, hot debate over how DoD should invest to create that future long-range strike force that has the resiliency, diversity, and capacity that our warfighters will need given a flat and declining defense budget. Uh, we also recommend that DoD assess the cost effectiveness of its long-range strike alternatives, as well as their effectiveness on challenging targets such as mobile missile launchers and hardened deeply buried facilities. Next slide. So I'll get right to the point with some of our key findings. Let's consider the Army's precision strike missile called PRISM that it's going to buy to replace its legacy attackums. Now, ground launch prisms will have INS GPS guidance, a 200 pound class blast strike warhead, a range of up to 500 kilometers. So just looking at range for a moment, 500 kilometers would allow prisms to reach targets across potential battle spaces in Europe to counter a Russian invasion along uh, NATO's Eastern frontier. And prison batteries will be able to operate under the cover of NATO's air defenses, and they can take advantage of Western Europe's transportation networks to frequently, frequently change their locations, which complicates Russia's counter-targeting 
and receive missile reloads and other logistics they need to sustain their operations. Now, the PRISM's range would be far more of an issue during a conflict with China in the Indo-Pacific. PRISM batteries postured, say, in Japan or elsewhere along the uh, first island chain will be located at least 700 to 800 kilometers from China's coastline. So that range penalty would limit the PRISM's ability to reach targets on China's mainland. However, they will have enough range to attack PLA Navy ships in the East China Sea and South China Sea, assuming the weapons have the right seekers to find a moving target. So Army PRISMs could complement capabilities that the Marine Corps is acquiring to conduct counter maritime strikes in the littorals. Next slide. So this slide illustrates what I just talked about. It shows how prisms launched from northern Poland can cover much of the Baltic states, which are currently underdefended against the Russian attack. It also shows the kind of coverage that prisms might achieve if they're postured, say, in Western Japan. And please note, we included the yellow colored fans on this graphic, which illustrates the prisms increased range if the army upgrades their rocket motors as it currently intends to. And we also added costs into the equation here. Based on army budget documents, initial prisms may cost about 1.2 million each, about the same as a JASM ER, but that could increase to an estimated 3 million or maybe a bit less than that each if they are given those upgraded motors to talk about and multi-mode seekers that are needed to attack maritime targets and emitters such as enemy air defense radars. Next slide. So to help you understand the debate, we offer several rules of thumb in our report to help explain the relationship between a weapon's range, their size, their speed, and their cost. Briefly, as the range of weapons increase, so do their size, because they'll need a power plant, perhaps the capacity to carry more fuel to extend their flight, uh, guidance systems, aerodynamic control services to maintain or change their flight path, and so on. All of those features increase their unit costs. Plus, all of those features are essentially expended once that weapon hits a target, they're thrown away. So increasing the speed of weapons in flight also tends to increase their costs, which is an important consideration for future hypersonic weapons. And finally, service launch weapons generally cost more than air launch weapons with equivalent weight class warheads. Why? Well, because Larger boosters are needed to propel weapons from the surface of the earth or, or the sea to high altitude trajectories and speeds that are required for them to reach distant targets. Now we cite the Boost Glide long range hypersonic weapon on the side, which will likely have sufficient range to reach targets in China if launched from the US territory of Guam or elsewhere in the Western Pacific. However, the long ranges and a speed that will increase the LRHW's ability to penetrate enemy missile defenses will come at a cost. Next slide. And that's what this slide shows. While the LRHW have the range needed for the Indo-Pacific, they can cost $40 million or more each. And that will likely constrain how many the DOD will be able to buy. Now, DOD also has stealth bombers and fighters that can penetrate defended areas and launch their weapons much closer to target areas. And that means they can use munitions that have shorter ranges and are also less expensive compared to those long-range standoff weapons. Plus, let's not forget the strike aircraft can carry and deliver multiple weapons per sortie. Now, they're going to need air refueling to extend their range and support from other systems to ensure that uh, the penetrators can operate in highly contested environments. But as the slide shows on the right-hand side, they can also attack an enemy from many different angles, which means they may be able to circumvent high threat areas. Plus, it also makes it more difficult for an adversary to uh, defend against their 360-degree attacks. And it's also worth pointing out that uh, aircraft are reusable systems, unlike LRHWs and, and other standoff weapons, which are one-time use. Next slide. 
So I'm going to turn it over to Lucas, who's going to make a few points on the effectiveness of long-range standoff weapons against challenging targets compared to strikes that can be launched by penetrating aircraft from those much shorter ranges that I mentioned. Lucas? All right, thanks, Mark. So when assessing what the right mix of capabilities for long-range strike might be, it's important to consider not just do they have sufficient range to reach their intended target, but also their effectiveness against different classes of targets. So on the left part of this slide, as you move up the pyramid, it illustrates increasingly challenging target sets that might need to be hit. As you move over to the right, it shows the relative effectiveness of different class of weapons against those targets. And what this shows is that our potential adversaries have implemented a variety of countermeasures intend to complicate our targeting. That includes active and passive defenses, such as surface air missiles uh, and camouflage concealment and deception measures. And now they've also made a lot of their capabilities mobile or relocatable, which means they can pack up and move within five, ten, five to 10 minutes of completing a mission, as well as they've also structurally hardened and or deeply buried a lot of their critical infrastructure and capabilities. Now, these countermeasures impact the effectiveness of all classes of weapons, of course, but as a general rule, they have a greater impact on standoff weapons that have to travel greater distances after launch. So just to take a couple quick examples for mobile or relocatable targets, the longer a weapon requires after launch to reach its designated aim point, the greater the chance the target will have moved prior to the weapon arriving, causing the strike to fail. Now, of course, you can add seekers or data links or increase the speed of the weapon to mitigate these problems. But again, as Mark already outlined, that all adds to the cost of the weapon and by extension, worsens the overall cost per effect. As for hardened and deeply buried targets, in general, long range standoff conventional weapons cannot carry a large enough warhead to have sufficient punch penetrate and destroy those types of targets. Ideally, you'd have weapons that can be released close to the target so they, they can be optimized for larger warheads instead of range. But again, the point here is that these considerations are going to factor into what the right mix of weapons is going to be. And in general, these tend to favor weapons that don't have to travel very long distances to reach their target. In other words, air launch defense. Uh, next slide, please. So before diving into this slide too far, it's important to reemphasize that this debate must be data and cost informed. And what this slide illustrates is how air launch effects are the more cost effective option for the preponderance of long range strikes. So what this chart compares is the cost of the notional long range hypersonic weapon battery from a strategic fires battalion, uh, which we assume will consist of four missile tells and a launch control center, as well as a few additional supporting vehicles with that of a new stealth bomber and an existing B-52 bomb. So starting on the left side of the graph, the fixed costs included for the long-range hypersonic weapon battery and the stealth bomber are the cost to acquire the new system, as well as the operation support cost over a 30-year period. Now for the B-52 bomber, there's no acquisition cost because obviously it's a system that's already in the force, so you're just paying for that operation support cost over the same 30-year period. Now as you move from left to right across the chart, the variable cost adds the cost of the types of munitions potentially expended by each type of platform. As you can see, the cost of the long-range hypersonic weapon battery quickly exceeds that of both the penetrating and standoff bomber options. In fact, if you look at the crossover points in terms of weapons expended, the number of weapons is roughly what each type of bomber could carry on about a single sortie. So this goes toward the question of affordable mass. If you have a small set of extremely high-value, time-sensitive targets that you want to destroy with a high level of confidence, you might be able to make a case for a niche capability of long-range ground-launched hypersonic weapons. However, in terms of striking the likely thousands of potential targets in a campaign over very long ranges, as one might expect in the Indo-Pacific, air launch effects quickly become the more cost-effective option. Uh, and so with that, I'll uh, turn it back over to Mark for some uh, concluding recommendations and thoughts. Next slide. Thank you, Lucas. That really is, uh, frankly, the money shot on this uh, briefing because it really lays out the differential between the cost-effectiveness of uh, two alternatives to strike. So I'm gonna conclude by saying, you know, DOD has completed countless studies on long-range strike over the last three decades, including a two-year comprehensive assessment 11 years ago on a need for a new penetrating bomber, which culminated in the decision to buy the stealth B-21. And what we've been saying today reflects the exact same conclusions that came out of that effort, plus the 90, 1997 Joint Deep Attack Weapons Mix Assessment that I helped lead and many other studies. So really, none of this is new and it's not theoretical think tank policy analysis. The numbers don't lie and the facts are clear that using service launch weapons are not the most cost-effective means of conducting a long range strike, strikes at scale. 
And that's especially true for strikes against adversaries who are investing an incredible amount of resources to make their weapon systems highly mobile, hardened their facilities that can't be moved, and taking other countermeasures that erode the effectiveness of standoff weapons. I'll, I'll conclude with five quick recommendations. First, the obvious. DOD's senior civilian leadership should direct an assessment of long-range strike alternatives from a cost-effectiveness perspective, as well as from the perspective of the ability to create effects against target sets. And the overarching objective should be to maximize the joint forces capacity and ensure the theater commanders will have multiple options for long-range strikes. And the failure to do that will result in wasteful resources uh, and wasting, wasting dollars when every penny of the defense budget is needed to keep pace with China, and in some cases regain its advantages that it's already lost, uh, is not the direction our department should go. So second recommendation, DED should consider the opportunity costs of some of its proposed long-range strike investments. And in our report, we cite the need to increase the joint forces air and missile defenses. And DOD should determine if some of the resources it intends to allocate toward Army long-range strike weapons could be better used to defend US forces and bases against air and missile attacks. In other words, determine what would result in the greatest increase in capacity to generate offensive combat power for. Buy a small number of expensive missiles to hit the same kinds of targets that penetrating aircraft uh, can, or invest in air missile offenses so we can generate combat sorties, so we can maneuver on the ground and conduct other missions. Third, we recommend the DoD address post-nation issues, such as the consent to posture U.S. missile batteries in your homelands, and then use those weapons directly against China or Russia in a crisis. These issues should not be assumed away or addressed the worst possible time in the middle of a crisis. And the last two recommendations repeat what we said earlier. It makes sense to posture prisons in Europe to bolster NATO's defenses. And they would also be useful for counter maritime strikes in the Indo-Pacific. But the Army should certainly work with the Marine Corps in the Pacific to integrate their capabilities for the same mission, much as they should work with the Air Force to integrate their capabilities for what the Air Force can bring to the fight. And with that, I'll turn it over to Stats. So let me bring uh, Brian Clark uh, from Hudson in on this discussion. And Brian, I, 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 I do hearken back to the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying, you know, essentially, hey, the more the long range strike across the services, the merrier. And he's a good friend and uh, I, I, I paraphrase that, but let's examine that a bit. How do you see the application of long range strike capabilities in terms of effectiveness and cost? And, Describe the trade-off in terms of the risk of duplication versus that diversity of strike options we might want. Uh, yeah, thanks, Stutz. And thanks for inviting me to be on the panel today. I really appreciate it. Um, it was great yeah. work uh, by uh, Gonzo and by uh, Lucas. So the um, to, to get at the question you raised, though, it, it's a very good point. So the vice chairman um, and uh, the Indo-PACOM commander have both mentioned that they would like to have this a diversity of fires, you know, so having ground-based fires does afford some advantages. They're, they're more persistent. Um, they don't necessarily um, require as much uh, overhead if they're there in, in an uncontested environment. So they can provide this ability to deter or impact the adversary's thinking in advance of conflict uh, in a way that um, air-delivered fires or surface-delivered fires from a ship don't necessarily do because the air-delivered and surface-delivered fires, although they could be responsive in the case of air, or they might be somewhat persistent in the case of ships. Um, they're not necessarily always there, and they do have this overhead associated with you know, delivering them to theater and protecting them. Whereas ground fires, um, you know, you can put a lot of defenses in place, but if it's in a relatively uncontested place or if it's in a permissive environment, uh, they could do it without a lot of overhead. So there, there are benefits to having those, those uh, surface fires, those ground-based fires there. Um, and then uh, for the ship-based fires, they're, they're beneficial, but I think we're finding that uh, naval fires are going to increasingly be employed mostly for the naval fight uh, because of the need to address the larger Chinese Navy. 
um, and also the fact that ships and aircraft carriers are going to have to operate a little bit farther away than they might have done in previous eras <laughs> against the Chinese. So um, that'll force them to deal with the naval battle more so than the ground battle uh, ashore uh, that might happen in China or somewhere adjacent to China. So that there, the, you see this differentiation of roles happening almost naturally between what the services are kind of gravitating toward, even though they would aspire, they all aspire to kind of try and do everything. The Navy is increasingly have to focus on naval fires. The Army is, you know, fundamentally focused on uh, the European challenge, but they've been trying to encroach upon the Pacific challenge. Uh, and I think that that's where we find this 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 controversy happening. Um, so I would say that, you know, based on what the Indo-PACOM and Vice Chairman have both said. There is a their role for ground fires in the Pacific to provide this persistence, to provide this impact on adversary decision calculus in advance of conflict happening. Uh, but then you got to think about well, what's the right level of fires to the to use for that purpose, uh, and where should they be postured? Obviously, getting these onto the first island chain will be difficult because host nation approval will be required. Um, maybe in the southwest islands of Japan, this might be an option. You're looking at still 700 kilometers or so to be able to reach targets in in mainland China. Um, which means PRISM would have to be updated significantly, but that that could happen. Um, so there may be a role for it there. Um, and then also uh, certainly the long range hypersonic weapon in Guam would be uh, a viable option, uh, which could provide that conventional deterrent that would be of use. Um, a couple other things to mention is, you know, the, the Army does provide uh, the bulk of the logistics for the overall US military, you know, half of all the stuff that gets delivered around the world for the military is coming via the army. And I think General Condell made a great point in their recent discussion about multi-domain task forces that, hey, we you need the army to deliver most of the stuff there. They're the, un the underpinning infrastructure for most of the joint force. They provide a lot of the air defenses for ground bases, outposts, every little you know place that we've got on the ground. Um, so they, they're needed for those roles, and those actually provide a, a, an element of the long-range strike capability by, by, by affording logistics and affording defense. So those, those need to be considered as well. Those are roles the Army plays um, that maybe are not getting as, enough, as much emphasis as they should in the discussion about long-range fires. Um, but I do think that the Army needs to think about what's the best, most effective way to employ its fires, uh, particularly in the Pacific. Um, in the European theater, I will note that they made a very good case for uh, ground-based fires being an element of what gets you inside the A2AD envelope, you know, by, by launching fires from essentially underneath the um, anti-axis envelope of the Russians in the Western Military District during Kaliningrad, you, you might be able to erode that um, air defense uh, umbrella and afford uh, access for uh, bombers and aircraft to get in there and deliver fires at a larger scale. But, but I'll, I'll leave it there, but I, there are obviously roles for each of the services fires um, in terms of complementing one another. And then the, 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 the challenge is coming up with what's the right mix. And I think there we might uh, need to look at whether the army in this kind of mid-range area makes sense in the Pacific or whether they should be focused on the really long range uh, strikes uh, or they should focus those mid-range capabilities on Europe. Over. Yeah, that's great, Brian. Uh, let me back up just for a second. You know, you, you explained a bit about how the Navy is going to use uh, long-range strike. Uh, I need to ask you the same question in the Marine Corps. Uh, and it's interesting, just yesterday, we hosted leadership of the Royal Air Force, and uh, he, he cited the Marine approach as a, um, uh, is, was a model for mission. Uh, that is, the Marines are laser board sighted on what they have to do in the Pacific specifically. And uh, they're looking across the services and they're purging duplicative capabilities as they look to be more mission uh, effective. Right. In fact, I, you know, there's that Marine Corps bumper sticker out there that says, why have two armies? Uh, <laughs> so where, where does long range strike fit into their force planning in terms of capabilities and operational effectiveness? So the, Marine, uh, the Marines are not really thinking about getting into the long, long range strike business. Um, they're, what they're focusing on is what the Army would call medium range uh, capability. Um, so the systems they're looking at deploying, um, which would be a, a variation on PRISM potentially because they do deploy a lot of the Army systems, um, or it would be the SM6, you know, which the Army is also looking at for the mid-range capability, um, or uh, naval strike missile, uh, which the Marines are already pursuing. Um, so those are the capabilities that are operating in this you know, 200 kilometer to 500 kilometer or 700 kilometer range. Um, so that's where the, the, the Marines have been. And the key though for the Marines is that the, the, the metric they're trying to meet or the, the, the objective of their, their fires capabilities is to affect the enemy's decision calculus. So um, as opposed to delivering volume fires for an attrition-like conflict, the Marines see themselves as delivering enough fires to create 
a challenge for an adversary that has to be respected. So some kind of threat the adversary is going to have to deal with. So either constrains their freedom of action on the on the water because these are mostly maritime fires, um, or it forces the enemy to have to deal with those targets. So it gives them an additional targeting problem to counter. Um, so the Marines are really all about this this decision part of the their decision or information uh, centric part of the fight, um, which which drives their thinking. So they don't need large salvos to do that. They need salvos that are big enough to be a threat and have to be respected, um, which which is aligned with their uh, idea of a, a kind of an austere force that's operating through this expeditionary advanced base operations concept. I'll stick with you, Brian, for a second. Uh, in the report, you all have put in there uh, quite a number of, you know, if you're going to look at cost comparisons, uh, consider many things that are not being considered. And one of those things uh, with respect to the Army's uh, proposed long-range strike capability uh, has to do with C4ISR that seems to have a very organic feel to it, kind of an old style feel to it. It seems to stray from the overall vision of what JADC2 is supposed to be. That is a seamless command and control structure, highly efficient, accelerates pairing of targets and, and shooters. Uh, so can you talk to these issues under the banner of, quote, you know, must be considered in the long range strike debate yeah, um, so uh, you know, part of the overhead, I'll let Lucas and Mark talk about the overhead otherwise, but um, one of the overhead uh, items that you have to think about for strike is how do you get the, the targeting information to the shooter, um, and how do you get the commander in there to be able to make a decision on whether to shoot or not, and what's the target. Um, so that C4ISR element of it often gets you know left by the wayside, and we think about it later. Um, but under JADC2, um, the strategy is being developed, and I, I think what we're likely to see out of JADC2 is an emphasis on trying to knit together existing networks um, through the data fabric that'll try to ensure that they use you know, consistent data formats, but trying not to create a new network. Um, and one of the elements of it will be that we need to be able to adapt our command and control relationships to the network's availability. So as we lose communications, we'll have to default to mission command, um, which we need to empower through better decision support tools. So that, that JADC2 philosophy of use existing networks, accept the fact that the network's not perfect, um, sort of moves away from the idea of building a highly resilient, highly redundant network architecture, um, which would have been the, the approach that leads you to think, well, each service needs to build its own network because then we've got three ways to do it, you know, as opposed yeah. to just one way to do it. Um, but JADC2 is leading us in the other direction. It's leading us to this much more, um, you know, we're going to come up with a network of networks. We're going to make that work. We're not going to try to invest in new network capabilities to continue chasing this goal of network-centric warfare. And so the Army's investments in um, the tactical space layer in particular, I think are pretty redundant to what is already being pursued by the Space Development Agency and the Space Force um, and DARPA, uh, and also the, in the commercial world. There's a lot of commercial investment going on right now for what we would call C4ISR capabilities that the military can leverage and that are even being designed with the military in mind. So there's lots of options for this space C4ISR capability that we should be taking advantage of as opposed to the Army developing its own tactical space layer. Now, the only other parts of the Army's C4ISR network or, or architecture they're developing, the Titan ground stations, the IBCS um, uh, command stations for missile defense that will now be doing more of the, the overall C2 job, those make sense because those are kind of those are army centric. You know, at some point you have to become service centric when it gets to the, you know, to the actual forces on the ground or the forces on the water. But the way that it joins up with the greater joint force needs to be much more of a. They should just tap into the existing joint networks that are being pursued as opposed to investing in an organic architecture designed to provide their own PNT, their own sensor data, their own comms in this tactical space layer. Which, which Brian seems uh, that would be a quite a price tag. I imagine. I know we hear of satellite constellations and so forth. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, let me swing a little bit here, uh, Gonzo. I want to ask you. Uh, Brian brought brought up the topic. You had it on your slide uh, about these bilateral agreements to station, you know, long-range missiles. Uh, of course, uh, there's there's the permissive stationing of these, perhaps, but most likely not, considering uh, uh, China is in that region and watching that. So what do you think about the prospects of that? In the past, we've spent a lot of money trying to trying to bed these things down. Are there other factors in that, Gonzo? Yeah, excellent question. Uh, I'll start by saying, hey, never say never. It's certainly worth exploring with Japan and our other regional allies in the Pacific, uh, the prospect of stationing 
battalions, uh, batteries of uh, long-range service fires on their sovereign territory. And that said, access must not be taken for granted. DOD working with the State Department should discuss this with our allies before it commits to procuring those land-based batteries for the Indo-Pacific. Now, my honest opinion, it's, it's gonna be a tough sell at best. Look at the pressure that China exerted on South Korea about five years ago when it agreed to host a THAAD missile battery to defend against North Korean missile attacks. And of course, that is a defensive capability. China even protested just a couple of weeks ago uh, some THAAD missile reloads that were shipped over to South Korea. It's, it's amazing. So we should expect China at the very least will launch an extremely aggressive effort to convince or even coerce Japan and others to deny access to our offensive missile batteries. But the issue is not just about host nation access. Army missile batteries will need to train periodically. So that means they'll have to come out of garrison and maneuver around our allies' uh, sovereign territories. They wouldn't have fight and so on. And of course, permission for those training activities has to be part of our discussions, as well as the rules of engagement uh, on how these weapons would be used directly against China in a crisis. And that's not an issue you wanna tackle during actual crisis response, because by then it's too late. So overall, I'm not optimistic on, on how it will turn out in the Indo-Pacific at least. Yeah, very good. Uh, Gonzo, I'll stick with you. I, I want to emphasize that a key point of your, your analysis does not reject uh, Army uh, longer range strike capabilities that are relevant in certain areas, uh, as you said, in Europe. And in fact, it helps to justify that requirement. Can you talk to that in terms of that, you know, balance between duplication and enhancing the overall war fighting prowess. Sure, and as you said, those mid-range weapons, the Army is contemplating buying the uh, PRISM and eventually the extended range PRISM, not, not too many years from now, but bolster NATO's defenses. Uh, they can be used against uh, invading Russian force. Uh, they can help suppress Russia and A280 threats and create other effects that are necessary. But uh, uh, the key is, those mid-range capability batteries should be permanently or rotationally postured in Europe, since deploying them into Europe during a crisis could take weeks or maybe even in some cases months. And they'll be doing it when our uh, lines of communication will be under attack by Russia for that matter. Uh, as Brian said, it doesn't make sense for the Army to fund fixed-wing aircraft with NTI radars, low-Earth orbit satellites, and other capabilities that are highly redundant for the Air Force, Space Force, and Navy uh, have already planned to acquire or have acquired. Uh, so taking a hard look at that is something that DoD certainly should do. And another key is to ensure the Army's strike operations will complement the long-range strikes launched by forces from other services, particularly the Air Force, when we're talking about Europe. Uh, there must be one fully integrated joint campaign, not separate, Army, Air Force, and Navy in strike operations. And that means that the Joint Force Air Component Commander should have the responsibility within the theater for all truly long-range strikes because the lack of unity command could reduce the effectiveness of our strikes and create safety of flight issues and other challenges for allied air forces. Oh, outstanding uh, thought there, Gonzo. Uh, let me pair the next two uh, questions together. I want to preface a question you, Gonzo. Uh, Lucas, uh, uh, your slide eight, please kind of repeat that cost trade-off or the cost break in the curve between the long-range missiles and the uh, bombers. Could you just say that once again before I go to the next question? Yeah, so I mean, if, when you just look at the, the cost comparison, I mean, a lot of that is driven by the cost of the long-range hypersonic weapon. I mean, if, if your munition costs about half the price tag of an F-35, I mean, that, that cost is going to stack up really fast. So, um, you know, that doesn't mean to say that, you know, there aren't targets that are so high value and so important that it's worth actually spending that money to go strike them. But right. really, it's just, those are going to be few and far between. So again, when you're looking at what the right mix of capabilities are going to be, that, that's just going to be really expensive for anything more than the most, you know, selective of targets. Yeah, right. But still, I get that. Okay, so 
Gonzo, uh, we've taken on, and this is a you know, Mitchell uh, study of cost per effect, that approach uh, to analysis. And that means looking way beyond unit cost and key performance parameters. In your presentation, when you talk about, again, what, mis what must be considered in the assessment of capabilities, cost, and operational effectiveness, can you peel that back for us? What may not be obvious to us at this point in this discussion? Sure. You know, when most people talk about costs, they tend to think about the unit costs to buy a weapon or a jet or a ship or whatever. But what matters more is the cost to complete a specific task, like destroying a target or achieving a mission kill on a target that renders it incapable of continuing operations. So that's what a cost effectiveness analysis would look at. Yes, it should include the cost of weapons expended to achieve those effects on a target set, plus the cost of their launch platform, logistics needed to sustain them, and the cost to defend them and their operating locations against enemy attacks. And that includes the cost to defend uh, the Army's batteries in foreign theaters, as well as their logistics and infrastructure needed to continue to resupply them with replacement missiles and so forth. Uh, so the example that Lucas talked about includes most of those except the cost of air defenses and so forth, which we just assume for the purposes of simplicity would be about equal for the, uh, the two alternatives, for the alternatives we looked at. But one of the reasons why air delivered weapons, especially penetrating capability stealth bombers and, and fighters that can carry those smaller weapons uh, are so much more cost effective is because they're reusable and they can attack targets using less expensive weapons. And they attack the exact same kind of targets that those more expensive weapons would, uh, would go against. So the bottom line really is failing to consider the cost per effect for different options to perform a mission like long range strike means that DOD can end up spending money on capabilities that cost more and deliver less, and it can't afford to do that. Well, let me jump on the other side of that discussion. Uh, we had a bombshell drop from CENTCOM this week. Uh, the commander, General Ken McKenzie Jr., you know, he's, he stated in testimony before the House Armed Services Committee that, quote, for the first time since the Korean War, we are operating without complete air superiority. Oh, wow, that was quite the statement. And this brings up the question, obviously, why? Uh, okay, everyone knows the US Air Force is the smallest and oldest it's ever been in its history. And its modernization has you know, been subject to cancellations and cuts since the 90s. But let's go look beyond that. Uh, we look at the vulnerability of bases in Iraq and uh, against Iranian missile attacks last year. And we look at the Indo-Pacific scenario and the essence of the long range debate is that perhaps DOD did nothing to secure those bases despite clear evidence that the Chinese had a strategy to attack them. So based on the analysis you did, what does this all mean that we may not be able to safely operate anything from those air bases? Yeah, you know, 10 years ago, I was saying that the lack of defenses for our theater installations, including the Army's bases as well as air bases, uh, was a dirty little secret. Well, it was certainly no secret to our adversaries. And China Russian missile salvos against US and allied air bases, for that matter, uh, will likely be the greatest threat to our air forces, the greatest threat for our ability to generate combat sorties and do other missions. Now, the good news is that. Air missile defense is a top priority for DOD and combatant commanders. That said, except for the Navy, it doesn't seem like a lot of progress is being made toward fielding the kind of high capacity defenses that are needed in uh, in the Pacific and Europe. And Brian can talk about what the Navy is doing if you'd like. Uh, so I just don't see the Army being that eager to pony up more of its resources to field new defenses to protect air bases uh, overseas. That is a mission that's long neglected. And frankly, that extends to defenses for its own fielded forces and installations as well. It's not all about the Air Force. So our report recommends that DD should consider the opportunity costs of some of the Army's long-range strike investments, including determining if some of those could be 
uh, its investments in long-range strike weapons uh, could be better used to defend American lives and bases in infrastructure overseas. Yeah, very good. Hey, Brian, I, I'm curious your perspective on that. Yeah, so the um, so I think it depends also on kind of what scenario you think you're going to have. So yeah. to get to back to the diversity of fires idea, if we think we're going to be faced with a situation where a few weapons might be needed to be launched, um, well, an army missile battery may be the cheapest way to do that. If you think about if you could put it out there in a more distributed manner, maybe it doesn't require a ton of defenses, it doesn't have the infrastructure or the fuel farms or anything else to protect. So that could be a pretty economical way to deliver a relatively small amount of fires, um, which gives you some escalation options at a lower level instead of having to blow bombers into, you know, attack mainland China. Um, so so the, from the Army's perspective, I guess from the COCOM's perspective, this is kind of why they're getting at the need for diversity of fires. So they've got some, some rungs on the escalation ladder before, you know, large scale strikes happen. Um, and then those, those forces are relatively cheap to keep in the field. Um, but right, you're right, once things become contested, they're very hard to defend. Um, and you're gonna have to think about uh, air defense tax on them. Um, whereas bombers could be coming from a more distant base that doesn't require as much defense. I mean, if they're flying in from Hawaii or they're flying in from CONUS, um, their defensive overhead is much is almost zero. So, so that that's a that's a trade-off that has to be considered. And then from the Navy's perspective, this is something the Navy you know worries about a lot because that ship carries around all of its own defenses with it, um, which is why you're seeing the Navy have to rethink whether it's really going to be able to be a part of the mainland strike type operation or if it's gonna focus its strike operations almost exclusively at sea or at perhaps islands in the South China Sea where you could reach them from a, a location where your defenses can match the number of weapons you're likely to face uh, from the mainland threat. So that's why in a China scenario, the, the Navy might find itself operating in the Philippine Sea because you can your defenses are sufficient for the, the threat that you're facing, but to move closer in, you might be doing so at higher risk um, in, a, in a threat, in a, in a contested environment type of scenario. Yeah, I'd like to footstop if I could start something that uh, sure. uh, you just said about uh, uh, the Army will need to defend its forces, its batteries, its logistics, uh, installations, and so forth to support those uh, uh, batteries. Uh, you know, you can't claim that service-to-service -service fires can kill highly mobile uh, Chinese uh, weapon systems and so forth over long ranges, but they can't do the same to us. Uh, they can and that's a fact we have to face up to, and we have to invest in the defenses needed so we can continue to fight and withstand the uh, the enemy cells. Very good. Well, I'll tease this out just one step further uh, and then we'll let it go. We've got a couple minutes left before we go to Q&A. And I'd remind everybody to use your raise hand function on the uh, app and I'll call on you when, when I do. Uh, please state your name and your affiliation. But right now, I'll, I'll kind of tease this out a bit on airbase defense because uh, it's it's got to go somewhere. DOD's got to get serious about it in some way. A uh, little history, we know that in the Vietnam conflict from the mid-60s forward, uh, this discussion about airbase defense, every IG went in and said, oh my gosh, we have to do something. And there was uh, analysis that said it would take about three battalions uh, we're talking Vietnam uh, to uh, defend the air bases. And, uh, but the commanders wanted the ground forces to always be on the offensive. So there was not a good resolution of that. And so I, I'm, uh, I'm curious about your thoughts, Gonzo, about transferring uh, who currently is in charge of that mission. And there's a lot of ligature that goes with it, but you know, Perhaps the Air Force receives a transfer of several divisions of uh, soldiers to become uh, ground, air, and missile defenders. Uh, how do you see that? Where does this need to go to get better? I, I think uh, the key words you said is someone has to do it. It has to be done. And everyone agrees on that. And uh, I will tell you that uh, uh, while I believe that is clearly an Army mission, uh, and a Navy mission to defend the sea and so forth. And the Air Force protects its own uh, forces, security forces perform that function inside the wire of their bases. Air and missile defense writ large, uh, I think should stay with the Army and they should fund the capabilities needed to protect the joint force. 
That said, if that doesn't happen, and the decision is that the Air Force uh, should uh, pick up that mission, fine. As long as the Air Force has the additional dollars, the additional resources, the additional end strength to do that, because it's a zero uh, sum game. If the Air Force picks up that responsibility, what's it going to stop doing? Close air support, barring strike, you know, air security. So uh, again, the dollars and resources have to flow to the Air Force if they were to take that mission on. Any thoughts on that, Brian? I'll give you the last yes, word. A, yeah, you bet. So let me, I, one thing I'll weigh in with is um, uh, shifting to a new air defense concept will be important as well. And Mark and I have written on this before, is that if we, yes. if we change our air defense approach to focus on shorter ranges in an effort to get greater capacity, so shorter range systems can have greater capacity because the weapons are smaller or because you can use directed energy um, that might be limited to the line of sight or, or constrained by the horizon. So by doing that, you're able to, you might have to need, need more systems, but they can have a higher capacity individually, which gets back to the Army case of if you think you can get by with a small number of fires, uh, maybe positioned in the Southwest Island chain or, or on Guam, you could defend those distributed ground launchers with a set of distributed shore ad systems, you know, short range air defense systems that would have a pretty high capacity. Um, and that might be a really good application of Army fires to give you that diversity um, for a small number of fires to give you some, you know, levels in the escalation ladder, as opposed to trying to use ground fires to deliver volume fires, which is probably not the most efficient way to use them. But that, but that shifting to a new air defense concept will be essential to be able to kind of deal with the the threat volume that you're likely to face anywhere close to China. Here, here. Very good. Well, we've got to move on, and uh, despite there's so much more to uh, discuss and debate. Uh, I ask you all out there to download this policy paper, Understanding the Long Range Strike Debate. I'll uh, say one thing, we, you know, we had the Chief of the Royal Air Force, as I said, visiting us yesterday, and he says he's watching this issue, and he noted that there's a lot of emotion, but he warned or advised us, the analysis and hard facts will always lead the way once, uh, once the emotion subdues. So Brian Clark, thank you for your service. Thanks to you and Hudson Institute for this team effort with Mitchell Institute. Wish you the best. Mark Gunzinger, as always, it's a pleasure. Lucas, our regards. And on behalf of Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, we wish you all the best as you work to inform the best choices involving long-range strike that best serve the nation's defense. Here, here. Okay, folks, we're now going to open the session. You can pelt our authors with some questions. As I said, please use the Q&A function, the raise, I'm, use the Q&A box, or you can use the raise hand function on the app. Again, when I call on you, unmute your mic, state your name and affiliation. So here we go. Uh, questions coming in on the Q&A, and I'll throw this to both Brian and probably Gonzo. But it says right up front, given the relatively small bomber force, is it truly going to be cost effective to rely on that force for long range strike? Interesting question. Uh, of course, you're asking a bomber guy. <laughs> so of I have course. strong opinions, but I'll base it on uh, all those studies I talked about, many of which I uh, helped lead or certainly participated in uh, since 1993. When you compare uh, how you maximize bang for the buck, if you will, in long-range strike, a dollar spent on penetrating bombers and the weapons they carry is uh, far more cost-effective in terms of warfighting capability than it is investing in very long-range service-to-service fires. Uh, what the Navy is doing is absolutely correct in terms of focusing more on the counter-maritime battle and the outer air battle and so forth. What the Marine Corps is doing in terms of focusing on uh, the fires that Brian talked about is absolutely correct. But trying to pry your way into the very long range strike mission, high volume strikes over long ranges using service to service missiles, it, it doesn't make sense. Any other thoughts yeah, I, on that? I, yeah, I agree. It's the um, trying to achieve volume fires with surface to surface fires 
doesn't make sense unless you're doing it at, at relatively short ranges, which is why we think the right. uh, army right. application in Europe makes a lot of sense because there those ranges are short enough to where you can actually have a pretty good salvo carried by ground forces. Um, and the same challenge happens at sea is, you know, the, the a Navy ship, you know, with a destroyer with uh, 96 missile cells might have half of those devoted to strike, um, which, which just seems like a lot of weapons, but that means that entire ship's capacity is expended on 50 weapons um, and then it has to go reload and it's out of the fight for, for some number of days. So it's, it's just not the most efficient way to deliver volume fires, but for uh, conflicts below that level, it's really important to have surface fires because it gives you that diversity, it gives you that ability to create more targeting problems for the enemy. So you have to be ready for that big fight, but you've got to be able to compete at the lower level of conflict as well. We've got somewhat of a daring question here that has to do with uh, taking both the long range fires, I suppose, and bombers off the table and uh, using reusable unmanned platforms to apply cost-effective non-kinetic uh, effects. Thoughts on that? I'll start, and uh, I know that uh, Brian has some uh, great thoughts based on analysis that we performed together, and he uh, uh, continued to do after that. Uh, I'm a fan of attributable unmanned systems, no question about it. But I'm a fan for using them for non-kinetic missions, such as airborne electronic attack, active passive sensing, uh, jamming, and other things that could be force multipliers for platforms that can carry much larger payloads of kinetic weapons. I think that's the combination we really should focus on, again, to maximize our offensive combat power, rather than buy a whole lot of these fairly small payload attributable systems that uh, uh, aren't going to put that much of a dent, again, if we are conducting uh, long-range strikes at scale. Brian? Yeah, yeah, and I and um, one thing to think about is um, you know the character of warfare is changing. Um, clearly, we are, or at least our, our adversaries are seeing things move away from an attrition-centric approach to something more like an information-centric, or we call it cognitive warfare. People talk about, uh, but you can see in their gray zone activities that they think that that is the path to achieving their objectives in a lot of cases. And so non-kinetic effects could be really valuable in going up against them. So high power microwave being delivered by attributable unmanned systems, um, jamming, uh, confusion, deception, those can all be really valuable tools, particularly when you're looking at those lower rungs on the escalation ladder. Um, so I, th I think we, you know, volume fires has, you know, we got to have that ability or else you're not going to deter anybody because you'll see, they'll see eventually there's a place where you're just not able to compete anymore. So you got to have the ability to do volume fires, but um, Non-kinetic capabilities can be really important at those lower levels of escalation, where they can be enough to uh, dissuade the opponent from escalating further, or in the big fight, using them to help uh, degrade the ability of the sensors and air defenses to um, impact your ability to deliver those long-range strikes. So you can reduce your, you can you can achieve an equivalent size salvo if you're able to degrade the air defenses as the weapons are making their way into the target, whether they're ground-launched or air-launched. Very good. Uh, let me just check if uh, we're, we're flashing on and off here. Teresa Hitchens, do you have a question or is that not your hand up? Oh, I didn't mean to raise my hand. <laughs> so okay. I know my question's been answered. So thanks anyway. Very good. Uh, question comes back to air-based defense. Uh, Gonzo, I'll throw this at you. Um, any estimates as to how much it would cost to build a, a complex, air-based defense complex as you've recommended in past writings? Yeah, um, a lot of proprietary information floating around here, but I'll tell you that uh, what Brian said is exactly correct. If you accept that higher capacity systems are uh, with shorter ranges are good enough to uh, really defend our forward air bases and, and other installations, not just air bases, uh, then it really opens up the aperture for what you can invest in. High power microwave systems, for instance, it can be effective against uh, armed drones, uh, cruise missiles, over significant uh, operational ranges, 
and at a high, very high rate, because it just takes a, a far, far, far less than a second, perhaps, to uh, uh, achieve an effect on an incoming cruise missile or a um, an armed drone. And there are examples uh, online of effectiveness of high-power microwave against drones. Um, lasers, I'm more of a fan of an airborne laser that can uh, uh, be posted out in front of a defended area to get a crossing shot on an incoming uh, wave of cruise missiles. Uh, Low-cost uh, hypervelocity projectiles that can be launched from you know, artillery pieces that cost maybe forty-five dollars to $85,000 a round that uh, can uh, kill a, a range of different threats and do so at a high rate of fires. So it's, it's not a matter of let's go out and spend tons more money on very, very, very expensive service air missiles to kill threats. There's a wide range of capabilities that are mature maturing that we can invest in, we can feel in just the next few years that'll harden our forces and our bases against Chinese and Russian attacks. A question here about, uh, this is probably Lucas, uh, the question asks about the effectiveness, the discussion about the effectiveness of targets, that pyramid that you, uh, on your slide seven, I think it was, and uh, talk about, okay, at filling $40 million a missile, what can it hit at the far range and what kind of warhead? And I think what the, what the question is, it's a little choppy, what the question is trying to get to is explain a little bit in more depth about why one uh, platform would be more effective than another. And those are mainly at the top of that pyramid. So I guess it was the deep targets, right? Or uh, reinforced yeah, targets. At the top was the uh, hardened and deeply buried, but I guess the, the deep inland targets was towards the top. Um, right. I, I guess we can, I mean, all we can say is we don't, we don't know exactly what the, the range of the long range hypersonic weapon is gonna be. Obviously that's, that's not known, um, but obviously you, know, you can adjust that range depending on the booster stack that you put under the, under the weapon. Uh, I think the challenge for the hypersonic weapon is, that it, you know, it's just really using primarily it's the, you know, the kinetic force of it. It's, it doesn't have much of a warhead on it. Uh, in fact, it doesn't have any at all. Um, so I think when we're talking about what types of targets that might be useful for, it's really thinking of things like over the horizon radars and things like that, that are one, really expensive, but then also um, are, are really important to take down early in a fight so that it can open up the way for, for other capabilities to come in. So it, it's really looking at that kind of being on the right side of that cost trade-off, you don't want to use it against targets that that are going to be, you know, less less expensive or, or less important to the fight. Uh, here's a uh, Brian for you. Brian spoke to the notion of limited strikes for the ground launch system. Is that really an option with China? Wouldn't launching a limited number of weapons onto mainland China be incredibly escalatory? Hmm. Yeah, it seems like um, an all-or-nothing tool. Right. That's a good question. Um, so the point I was making was um, there could be a lot of different target sets that would be amenable to a small number of strike weapons. So like mostly in the maritime world. So if you look at the Army's medium range capability that they're pursuing, um, that would be most beneficial in a counter maritime context, just because the ranges to hit targets inside of China that you might want to hit with a ground based weapon because of its escalatory nature are probably, you know, inland targets where we're getting into a large war where we're going to try to hit command and control of facilities and that kind of thing or bases. Um, so if you're looking at using a small number of ground launch weapons, it's probably against maritime targets or against um, island targets, for example, um, where you're trying to attack an island like in the South China Sea or elsewhere that's, a, that's a not part of the Chinese mainland. So that, that otherwise you'd be looking at use, having to use much larger salvos, right? Because you're going against something in the mainland China that's probably well defended. Um, so that, that context is probably the, the maritime world um, where you're using a ground launched army weapon to a, hit a maritime target. Very good. Uh, so we've got about 30 seconds left and I've got a nice short question here. When we talk about the numbers of targets that must be struck for a major theater level effort, What's a rough number, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000? And how does that factor into this debate? Now, so that's, uh, take a look at Operation Desert Storm. Very quick answer. We struck, uh, I think it was somewhere north of 40,000 uh, different aim points. And uh, we've tracked that for different uh, uh, air campaigns since then. And, and you know, a conflict with Russia, where it's 
truly invading one of our uh, uh, NATO allies or a major conflict with uh, uh, China over Taiwan or something in the South China Sea. Frankly, the number of targets we should be prepared to strike could exceed all the targets we've struck since, uh, including and since Operation Desert Storm. We simply don't have the weapons and the platforms to do that today, which is why DoD has a long-range strike capability gap, which is why it's buying the B-21 and investing in hypersonic weapons and other missiles. And that is why DoD must take a cost-effective or do a cost-effective assessment to figure out what is going to maximize our combat power in the future force. Very good. Well, everyone, we've come to the end of this rollout of the paper uh, written uh, jointly with Mitchell Institute and Hudson Institute, understanding the long range strike debate. Uh, to Brian Clark, thank you. Mark Gunzinger and Lucas Altenreid, thank you. Uh, for providing greater clarity with facts and analysis. Uh, to all of you, from all of us at Mitchell Institute, have a great aerospace power day.